Faces come and go and I'm forever grateful Come and tell me long and slow exactly what I wait for Better times, yeah, better times, somehow I don't believe it I built a house up long ago just to believe it It's Pollinator Week, that's right, June 19th through June 25th is the nation's annual celebration of pollinators and their critically important role to our natural world. As you undoubtedly know by now, the same upland bird habitat we've referenced as brood habitat for four decades, a habitat that's filled with a diverse mix of grasses, legumes, forbs, or flowering plants is identical to the habitat needed by pollinating honeybees, butterflies, beetles, insects, you name it. Pollinator habitat is upland bird brood habitat. It's also the very same habitat needed for our beloved monarch butterflies. And that, ladies and gentlemen, monarch butterflies, is the focus of this Pollinator Week special episode of On the Wing Podcast. And joining me are Pollinator Week regular Anna Swarzak, Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever's Habitat Education Program Manager, and our organization's Pollinator Week quarterback. And Wendy Caldwell, the executive director for Monarch Joint Venture, which just happens to be located in the Twin Cities with me. But we'll learn a little bit more about Monarch Joint Venture and Wendy. Let's start with with Anna. Um, It's been a year since we last chatted on the podcast. It's another Pollinator Week special Why don't we start with a little bit about your background, Anna, um, what you do for the organization, some news you might want to share, and um, we'll have you um, wrap up your introduction with a favorite topic of mine. Uh, What is your favorite pollinator plant? So take it away, Anna. You're uh, testing my memory here after, which gets... (laughs) Harder and harder, I feel like, the more you have kids and your memory just starts to <laughs> slip away a little bit. Um, so I'm our HABDA Education Program Manager um, for Friends Forever and Coral Forever. And I started with PF. It gets longer and longer, which is wild. It's been almost nine years now, um, which I still feel like a baby. But then I say that and then it makes me feel old. Um, that feeling never goes away. I'm still 22 in my own mind, too. Yep, with your bobbleheads and everything, right? Oh, shots fired. <laughs> I love it. Mine's, uh, you're, you got the bobbleheads, I got the stickers. We'll there just you be go. stuck in whatever our favorite thing is. Um, I haven't let mine go yet, though. Um, <laughs> Neither of high by the neither I've got bobbleheads lying in the wall next to me. That's awesome. <laughs> um and so I I was a farm biologist for Friends Forever starting out and then transitioned onto our habitat education team and um just have thoroughly enjoyed teaching others about habitat. Um, I mean, we did it in the field all the time as a farm bill biologist with landowners, and now I just get to help create programs for youth and adults across the nation, which is a lot of fun. Um, and then, yeah, I got some, a little bit of news. I know Wendy knows as well, too, but this could be my last, I don't know, I guess you could always have me back on, but could be my last Pollinator Week podcast. So it's definitely feels like a, a special episode um, so have decided we, we moved back to our family farm a couple of years ago. And then, um, and that was after we made that decision after we had our first kid. And then after we had our second kid, we're like, it's time now. So we moved back to the farm and 
with that, life just got Mm. so much busier. Um, And so decided to, I like to call it retiring early (laughs) and going to stay home with the kiddo and just soak up all of those moments because, man, time just goes by faster and faster, which is wild. It is. It is wild. It's a good, important lesson to keep in the front of your mind because we all get caught up with life. And um, kudos to you. You have taken the organization so far in nine years. Um, You're only the only requirement I'll leave you with is that you have to find a replica of yourself. <laughs> there is somebody nearly as good as you will be critically important, but we'll always have a standing invitation for you to join Pollinator Week because you've taken taken this effort to brand new levels for sure. So thank you for all you've done, Anna. I appreciate that. And I, I'm probably not going to be going far. I have so many contacts with NPF, but you guys are still <laughs> going to hear from me and get Pollinator pictures and if I see Pollinator Week goes away or something, I'm sure everybody will hear from me very vocally. <laughs> well, we'll we'll change. We we won't we won't uh, leave this on a um, oh, on a sad note. This is intended to be a celebration. Um, so let's let's kick that off with. I asked you about your favorite pollinator plant, but feel free to take that two directions if you like. What's your favorite pollinator? species, the insect, uh, bug, butterfly, bat, and what's your favorite plant? Do you have favorites of of both of those, Anna? Oh, man. Yeah, that's a good question. When I do like our our pollinator habitat outreach projects, and I always ask the kids to start naming off pollinators, Mm -hmm. the one that is always missed is bats Mm -hmm. and spiders. Spiders? Yes. Okay. And so I think because of that, they're probably spiders are probably one of my my favorite ones to watch. Um, and so they're not, uh, you know, foraging the nectaring source or anything like that. But they're they as they go from flower to flower, trying to catch pollinators, they do inadvertently pollinate flowers. Mm. So they're kind of a you know a cool little pollinator that most people don't think of, and it's always fun to try to find those find those across the prairies and stuff when you're looking at flowers. Yeah. I didn't really know that. Like you can, I guess I could project it with arachnids with eight legs. They're going to inadvertently pollinate something. right? <laughs> yep. Uh, what about a plant? Do you have a favorite plant? Uh, I say bergamot, I think mm. uh, most of them. And that's still like, anytime I'm like, okay, maybe I should change up my favorite. Cause there's, so many options, right? And you can find cool little, you know, different uh, wildflower species out there. But bergamot's probably still my favorite. It smells amazing. Oh. It hosts so many different pollinators on it. Um, so and that one, one that one seems to, that plant seems to get a foothold and expand like instantly. It's really easy to plant. And I don't know, my experience is it doesn't take a lot of nurturing for that plant to really take off? Is that just the soil type or my, or is that pretty natural for that plant? Do you know? I I know I've planted it in Iowa and Nebraska myself, like in both of my backyards. And it's always one that just does phenomenal. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I kill house plants. That's one of the reasons <laughs> I love. <laughs> I love wildflowers because it's like they just, they're so drought tolerant. So when yeah. you forget to water them, right? Like they have such deep root systems. Um, so they can take a little bit more beating than a lot of your other ornamental wildflowers. Right on. Well, Wendy, I'll introduce you into the conversation. Thanks for patiently waiting. I, I have a feeling I know what your favorite pollinating species is going to be. <laughs> uh, tell us a little bit about uh, who you are, your background, and what you do for the Monarch Joint Venture. Yeah, I'm really glad to be here. Um, I feel like I'm being set up for this question of your favorite (laughs) plant and your favorite pollinator. Like I'm only allowed to say monarchs and milkweed. Um, I might divert from that, though. Cool. Um, So, yeah, I'm I'm Wendy Caldwell, the executive director of an organization called the Monarch Joint Venture. So continue to 
organize this network of partner organizations, um, NGOs and government agencies and academic institutions and local volunteer-led groups and nature centers all over the United States around monarch and pollinator conservation. So mm. my role there as executive director, I started back in in 2007 working with Monarch. So it's been um, a long time and had the opportunity to work with a research lab, the Monarch Lab, and be part of, of research experiments and participate in teacher education workshops and lead community science programs. And so have done all of the, all of the things around monarch conservation, um, ultimately to, to help grow this incredible organization and network into a much bigger, um, network of incredibly dedicated partners who are all kind of working on this collective mission of, of pollinator conservation. Um, believe it or not, I didn't, I didn't come to the Monarch lab or Monarch joint venture with a, a particular draw to monarchs, but quickly learned the, the power of this species as a charismatic flagship for having mm. a bigger conversation about conservation. Um, and so I grew up on a farm in West Central Minnesota, grew up in in 4-H, and my love for not just pollinators, but insects in general came out of this 4-H project. I was collecting, collecting insects and adding to that collection year after year, and um, just became fascinated with the whole ecosystem and biodiversity around just insects in general. So I had the opportunity to hone in this interest with a species like the monarch butterfly, but just quickly learned the power of this, this insect. So yeah, I think, I don't think I can steer far from the monarch butterfly as my favorite pollinator, <laughs> even though, even though they are, um, like most butterflies, not the best pollinators out there, mm. um, but a pollinator nonetheless. Right on. Um, so we'll we'll give you a free pass and say monarch and milkweed number one on the charts. But what what else do you really? What other species really grab your heart? I thought about this question, um, and you know really keep coming back to, well, it was, a, it was kind of a toss up outside of, of milkweed. Um, but I love the pask flower because it's mm. one of the earliest species that comes out blooming in the spring and, you know, such a critical time period for those early season pollinator resource needs. And it's just this incredibly beautiful flower um, that comes out before everything else. And I, I just love it so much. So past flower. And then my very close second is meadow blazing star, mm. um, which blooms more in the later summer, early fall, just because it's like a drug to monarchs. They love it. <laughs> they, <laughs> they will find it. They will flock to it and huh. create this kind of spectacle of butterflies if they have anything else to choose from like meadow blazing star is is the one huh so is it simply for the nectar that they are attracted to it or is there a different reason that that the, they gravitate towards that flower you know i i don't know i don't know the biology behind that um maybe it's super sweet and or it mm. has a lot of nectar and because usually it's at that time period where monarchs are gearing up for their fall migration. Right. And so they're looking to build those fat reserves. And so maybe it, I don't know if it's the taste or the amount or what it might be, but they, they certainly love it. Yeah, that's cool. That's cool. Well, I'll, I'll add my, my favorites in there, which no surprise, Anna, my favorite flower hasn't changed from last year. I like, I, I love the lupin. Um, and it, very similar to Wendy's point of view, it's it's one of the very early bloomers, and I, I love it. Um, you know, early, well, early summer, late spring in Minnesota, that purple flower um, just has always gravitated um, struck me. I've always gravitated towards that one, and um, pollinating um, species. I 
I think I maybe even mentioned this last time too, but and I love hummingbird moths. Mm, just yes. you know, they're just so it's like transformers, right? It's an amalgamation between a moth, a butterfly, and a bird. You know, like they're just so wicked looking that I just, I just when I've seen them, I I get to see them a couple times a summer in our backyard. We have a pollinator plot next to our garden, and when the hummingbird moth or moths show up in my backyard, it's it's a special day, and I really, really think that they're pretty cool. Um, all right. So let, let's transition a little bit. So folks listening, our regular audience of bird hunters and pheasant and quail hunters and bird dog lovers. Um, Wendy, maybe I'll start with you. Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever are partners of Monarch Joint Venture. Uh, from your perspective, tell Tell us the intersection between our beloved upland game birds and what Monarch Joint Venture is in intending to accomplish as its mission. What, where, where can bird hunters find? Oh, I get that. That makes sense. Great question. Um, I mean, in the most simplest terms, we're helping to create the food that your target species eats, right? They, they, they <laughs> right. eat insects. Hopefully those pheasants aren't out there eating monarch butterflies. Uh, but, you know, <laughs> birds often are, you know, a main resource for, for upland game birds is, is insects. And so they're relying on these diverse grassland habitats, just like monarchs are, where that milkweed grows, where other, other nectar resources grow. Um, it's creating that habitat for insects that ultimately, you know, help to to fuel the food chain and support a healthy dynamic and a healthy ecosystem of insects and birds and mammals and reptiles and you know all all of the the organisms that share those habitats. Ultimately, we're all striving for the same thing of high quality grassland habitat that can support support all of those things at the same time. Yeah. Anna, you're shaking your head in, in agreement the entire time. Yep. And you're smiling too. Anything you'd add to, to Wendy's um, comment there? Yeah, it's, I mean, pollinator habitat is like a, it's like an upland bird chick food plot, mm-hmm. right? Like they're not eating, you know, what we typically do for our food plots, any of your millets or anything like that later on those little chicks. I mean, quail are like the size of your fingernail, right? So mm-hmm. their food plot would be pollinator habitat. Yeah, it is funny when you think about it that way. What Monarch Joint Venture ultimately is doing is creating a food plot for pheasant and quail, (laughs) (laughs) which is in the simplest terms. I mean, it is, I say this a darn near every episode, it's the web of life, right? Like we all learn this in third grade. And fundamentally, that's what we're talking about here. Uh, I'm on monarchjointventure.org, which is the website. And I'm looking at the partners page, Wendy. And it you just keep scrolling and scrolling and scrolling. I don't I don't know how many partners there are. There's there's hundred partners here that you work with. What off top of mind, what's a partner? Like, I think to some people they would be scrolling on this page and be like, pheasants forever and quail forever. That's interesting. Like hopefully we've done a good job over the last decade of explaining to folks the intersection between upland game birds and pollinators, monarchs. What's a what's an, another partner entity that you would highlight and say, you know, here's another example of the web of life and the intersection between monarchs and another entity's mission. You'll definitely see a growing um, range of types of partner organizations. So I would say, like when we when we first started out, it was a lot of the the typical pollinator conservation organizations. Um, you know, this is kind of their main mission. Mm-hmm. And as as we've grown, um, there's this incredible interest and need for a much broader 
set of organizations to to play a part. Um, so like Business Forever, Coil Forever certainly fits that role. But, you know, we're also partnering. You'll see a lot of different corporate in industries, entities starting to add to this list, like the Kansas City Southern Rail Company and the mm. um, Bayer Crop Science and Farmers for Monarchs. And so these different sectors, energy and transportation companies that are somehow influencing land, but their main mission isn't pollinator conservation. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and sometimes, sometimes they're, they're, a lot of these entities can be impactors, right? That are are also part of part of pollinator declines. And so we create this space for there to be dialogue and conversation about how can they contribute to pollinator conservation um, in a way that's helping us all move towards this collective mission of sustainability, of pollinator conservation, of biodiversity conservation. We all have this role to play. And so our network becomes this complicated web of different organizations who all have different angles and different purposes. Um, and our, our, our job and our role is to really help move everybody in the same direction so that we can have a bigger collective impact. Yeah. Yeah. It's really well articulated and you can see the illustration of that again at monarchjointventure.org and all the partner organizations that are involved. Let's jump into a little bit of the the life cycle and the needs of the monarch and the interconnection between milkweed. I sort of jumped ahead a little bit, but you can you can fill in the gaps there, Wendy. Um, give us an overview. If we didn't raise monarchs in our third grade class, um, fill in a few of the blanks for us. What, what makes the monarch so special and unique? Yeah, they have this incredible annual cycle. Um, so, so there are about four to five generations of monarchs per year. Um, and so kind of starting with that that super generation, that migratory generation is typically the the last generation of the year. And so monarchs from all across North America, you know, into Southern, all across the U.S., into Southern Canada are migrating up to 3000 miles from wherever they, wherever they started down to central Mexico. And they do that in one generation. Um, So, so monarchs that are leaving Minnesota, where I am, um, where we are, We'll make it all the way to Mexico, spend the entire winter there, um, and then actually begin to reproduce and start the, the the journey northward. So they make it to about Texas, the southern U.S., where they're in search of milkweed to lay their eggs and kick off that next generation. So then those offspring will continue northward in the spring and populate the rest of the of the Eastern United States. So Hmm. for this population, we're talking east of the Rocky Mountains. Um, So their offspring come north, usually around around early June. Monarchs are reaching the northernmost um, locations around across their range. And so then they'll have a few breeding generations during the summer until they ultimately again produce that fall migratory generation, which then, you know, would which then migrates to Mexico to these same locations high up in the OML fir forests of the mountains in central Mexico where they've never been before. Um, so that's, I think, the most incredible mm-hmm. phenomenon about monarchs is just this, this incredible migration that's accomplished by multiple generations. Mm-hmm. Well, and you think about the, that last generation, like the winter generation, for lack of a better term, that mm-hmm. flies... 3,000 miles, <laughs> you know, in and of itself, that's remarkable. I mean, we're talking about a butterfly. You know, you think about butterflies and hummingbirds that, that travel on those little tiny wings, you know, and it makes you think, well, Canada geese have it easy, you know? <laughs> <laughs> but it is, it's so remarkable to think in, in the biology of that one generation lives for like four or five months and the other ones live that just- overwintering yep the overwintering generation can live up to nine months nine months and then, 
And then the breeding generations live on average about a month, like two to six weeks. So, so it's a little bit, it's that cost of reproduction. So when, wow. when the, when you're investing a lot of your energy and resources into laying eggs and mating, then um, that's compromises your lifespan, so to speak. Ooh, I feel that. It is remarkable. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, the inner link between monarch butterflies and milkweed. There are a hundred, over a hundred species of milkweed across North America. Um, but, and, and monarchs will use most of those, those milkweed species, but it, it is the only host plant, the only host plant that monarch caterpillars can eat. So mm. that's why it's so critical to this conversation. We don't need just milkweeds for monarchs, but it certainly is the most important um, element in the equation here because their caterpillars will only eat milkweed plants. And so I think that brings in this other element of monarch life cycle so monarchs have complete metamorphosis, which means they're laid as an egg, they hatch into a caterpillar and go through five different caterpillar stages or instars as they're eating milkweed and molting their skin and, and mm. continuing to eat. Um, I, I like to share this fact that that is always really intriguing to people. Um, a monarch caterpillar will grow to 2000 times its original size, original mass. And so it's kind of like, um, since we're on the on the theme of human babies, it's kind of like a human baby growing to the size of an elephant over the course of two weeks, mm. <laughs> which is incredible. Um, <laughs> and then they become a chrysalis, mm -hmm. and um, that chrysalis is not mobile. Usually, it's they they wander off the milkweed plant to form that chrysalis as that final stage, the adult butterfly is forming. Um, so they're not eating at that point. They're just protecting themselves from hopefully nobody's going to find them and eat them. But then that adult butterfly is where they become more of a generalist and they're not looking, they might be looking for milkweed to find a mate or lay eggs on, but ultimately they're looking for a lot of different blooming plants mm -hmm. to nourish themselves. And so that's why when we're talking about habitat and designing habitat, we need it to contain both milkweeds and nectar plants, blooming plants that are available across the entire growing season. Mm. Explain, maybe I'll throw this one to Anna. Um, explain the importance of blooming periods in plants in the habitat design, not only for monarchs, but in kind of a, a healthy environment. Yeah, I think it's sometimes easy, especially, you know, just to like focus on, okay, this one flower, this is awesome. Like we talk about our favorite ones, right? Mm -hmm. um, and it gets easy to focus like, oh, this one's like the all-star and mm -hmm. it wins. But I mean, everything we do, we need diversity, just like we need, I. Mm. this is okay. So we're going to go back to a uh, what I tell the kids on our pollinator projects is, you know, if you only ate ice cream every day for the rest <laughs> of your life for every meal. And at first they're like, their kids are getting pumped up. They're like, mm -hmm. Oh yeah, ice cream every day. That's great. And I'm like, but what's going to happen after, you know, a couple of weeks, a month mm -hmm. of only eating ice cream. They're like, Ooh, yeah, I'm going to get sick. I'm not going to feel good. I'm like, yeah. So like, Ice cream's not bad to eat every once in a while, but we need a diverse diet in our mm. food for us to stay really healthy. Um, and so that's the same thing for pollinators. They need a diverse option of, you know, foraging wildflowers for them to stay healthy as well. And so what that's going to look like is wildflowers of different sizes and different colors that are all blooming throughout the whole growing season. And so... They can be kind of classified as like early, mid and late season blooming wildflowers. And so when we look at designing mixes um, and doing pollinator plantings, we want to make sure that we're including species within each of those that way, especially as the monarch butterfly migrates. And as all these pollinators kind of awake um, at the beginning mm. of the spring, um, that they have that food source right away and they have it all throughout the summer through the end of fall. 
in my assumption is there's there's less species that bloom early and a few less that bloom like i'd say just perspective there's the least amount of early bloomers second least amount of late bloomers and like there's a dearth a ton of mid-season summer blooming yep. plants and i'm not a biologist um or a botanist um is that accurate I know it's certainly accurate as you're looking through and like designing a seed mix. There are very limited for early. You'll have a little bit more for those late. And then that mid-season blooming, there's, you know, there's a lot more to choose from during that time. Mm. So here's another really bizarre question, but it coming from the minds of a marketer. Um, <laughs> and we can edit this out if need be. <laughs> um, but I also think about those early blooming flowers they tend to be a variety of colors, um, but a little bit more on the cool, like purples and blues. Mid-season are, you pick, I mean, lots of different colors, but a lot of reds and pinks. And, and then late season, like, in my mind, definitively, lots of yellows. Is that accurate? Like, I think about goldenrod and compass plant and um, cup plant, like, as a season, and maybe it's just geographic too. Maybe that's just what I see. But is that color difference that exists in my mind, different bloom periods during different bloom periods accurate? Or is it in the figment of my imagination? It might just be what you're observing. I was looking at our at our kits and it looks like for early blooming um, for these Eastern kits out of the three different ones, we have a white, mm. a, a cream. So it's kind of like a yellow white mm -hmm. and there's a red mm. for early blooming. Um, for our mid, there's an orange and a pink. And then for late, well, we have purple. So. Mm. Yeah, I think I was going to say, it sounds like you need some uh, blazing star in your, in your fall plantings <laughs> that you need to add some purple, maybe aster, you know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it is. It is funny how your own pers perception and geography can sort of skew your view of the world. Right. And it, I think it goes to your earlier point, Anna, like, I probably plant what I like to look at. Yep. <laughs> and that's not always the best biologically either, right? To have a well-rounded uh, pollinator planting, you need to think about a couple of things. You need to think about blooming period, different foraging sources. Like there's, there's lots of things to consider when you're planting your own pollinator plot, whether that's for, you know, color, beauty, or for, insects, monarchs, or birds. There's things to take into, um, into mind when you're designing that, correct? Yep. And I mean, if you want to get really nerdy, you can like start looking up host plants and finding which little, you know, cool mm. species you want to plant to try to be a host plant for a species as well, too. It, you can the get other, sucked into some really fun rabbit holes. Well, the other thing I think about is plant structure, Especially if you're a quail chick the size of a thumbnail, right? Like you, you do want to have some of those pollen. Like I, I go back to compass plant and cup plant, which have taller stem structures and create um, sort of protection from avian predators. Mm -hmm. If you're a pheasant or a quail chick, which is important to have when you're planting yep. it with a your primary goal being. Um, you know, to create a insect food plot yep. <laughs> for pheasants <laughs> or quail, right? So, so it, I think the moral of the story is anything you can do as a person that wants to plant habitat to improve land for wildlife, anything you can do to plant pollinators is a good thing. If you want to get nerd out, let's say that. <laughs> Then there's a lot of different directions you can take this um, to really make it the most beneficial for a wide array of species. Is that accurate to say, Anna? Yep. And I think, I mean, especially if you're doing your own plot too, um, it sometimes can get overwhelming. And so just know that like, if you just 
get a really good diverse mix, which we have on our uh, Pheasants Forever mm-hmm. seed store um, that you can get mixes per states on there um, and pick one of those diverse pollinator habitat mixes, you're going to be set. So that'll take a lot of the thinking out of it. Um, if you start like it's a trying good to think, yeah, yeah, trying to think you have to pick out all of these individual species. Um, but the more diverse, the better. And so if you get a nice, good diversity out there, it's more diverse plants you have, the more diverse wildlife it's going to support as well, too. You can start with those base mixes and then add your favorites in, add more of the the ones you really like to look at. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. You got to get, you have to get a little bit nerdy with these plantings too, though, because plants are temperamental when it comes to where they like to grow Mm. as well. So you have to think a little bit about the soil type and the precipitation or the drainage, right? So some plants like it wetter, some plants like sandy soil. So you have to, have to, um, but I think your the PFQF seed mixes are allow you to filter for that as well. Right on. Right. Um, let's go back, Wendy. To I kind of took a left turn uh, uh, away from monarchs there for a moment. <laughs> um, uh, you know, a lot's been made in the news where monarch populations have plummeted here in the last decade, um, really the last two decades. Um, tell us kind of what's happened, why that, why the monarch populations have plummeted, where we stand today, and then, uh, then we can get into what's, what's being done to reverse it. Yeah. Monarch populations are, are not what they were historically. Um, and so I think there's, there's some conversation now around, you know, are monarchs declining or have they declined? And so, so Mm. we think about it in, in kind of some nuanced terms, right? In that this population, the Eastern monarch population, historically, um, I guess I need to step back a little bit. And the population, because it's so geographically widespread, is really hard to measure when monarchs are all over North America. Hmm. And so the population, this relative year to year size of the population is measured when the monarchs are overwintering in Mexico. Um, And that population measurement is actually an area. So where these butterflies are flocking to the mountains in Mexico in a handful of different, a dozen different, um, different colonies, different reserves, then they measure the area of the trees that the butterflies occupy while they're in Mexico for the winter. And that's how we measure the size of that population. So they're not actually counting butterflies. They're just estimating a number of butterflies per per hectare of forest. And so, all the butterflies from the all the, the areas of the United States go to this singular part of Mexico, correct? Um, east of the Rocky Mountains. Yep. Okay. So west of the Rocky Mountains, those butterflies, they, they do, you know, some may end up in Mexico, but most migrate mm-hmm. to the coast of California. And there are... Uh, many sites along the California coastline where those butter, those Western monarchs will overwinter. Mm-hmm. So we have these kind of two distinct um, migratory populations, the Eastern monarchs east of the Rockies and the Western west of the Rockies. Gotcha. And th- these forests in Mexico, which obviously are so critically important for the population, are they protected? Um, is that habitat protected in Mexico? It is, yeah. There's a government decree in Mexico designating the um, that this area where monarchs overwinter as the Monarch Butterfly Biosphere Reserve. So mm. it it is under um, government protection, but there you know continue to be some challenges with illegal logging and you know avocado plantations have been a, a big topic of even though for the most part avocados are lower down the mountain, not as high up where the butterflies are. They're still, you know, within those, those threats continue to exist just like they do out threats exist here in the U S with land conversion and different practices that are affecting pollinators. So, um, but yes, to, to your question, they are, there is some protection for the area in Mexico where monarchs overwinter. So the, that's not the primary result or that's not the primary cause 
to the population decline. The population decline has been habitat conditions here in the United States, correct? Yeah, I mean, it's absolutely we're all we're all responsible here. You know, I think for mm-hmm. this really complex, it, it spans North America and monarchs have different needs in different areas, you know, geographically. They have different needs in Minnesota than they do in Mexico. And we've all you, you have to think about these really complex, you know, it's 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 pretty simple when you think about monarchs need milkweed and they migrate. But, you know, when you start to think about how what can go wrong, mm-hmm. um, it, you know, it's protecting their overwintering sites in Mexico. And then when they migrate, they need to that timing of not just when they migrate, but what's available to them becomes critically important. So we're starting to pay more attention to, um, to use a scientific term, something that we call phenological mismatch, where uh, monarchs might be, the, the weather is pushing monarchs farther north in their spring migration ahead of the milkweed emerging, or, mm. you know, the spring timing of milkweed emergence might vary from year to year given the weather and climate conditions and then if it comes up early and then experiences a late frost and then knocks everything back so it's just there are so many scenarios where if that timing and and that weather as a driver doesn't line up perfectly to support monarchs and boosting their population or supporting that next generation then it throws off this whole cycle right Mm. where you could either you can set them up for a uh, they're, they're kind of boom and bust. So you can set them up for a really, they have high reproductive potential. So they're pretty mm-hmm. resilient and can recover with, with good conditions. But also if the reverse is true and things don't line up quite right, they can also fall rapidly. Mm. Um, mm. And so all of those factors, you know, when we think about monarch decline, it's really this, monarchs in the crossfire of a lot of different threats, whether it's timing and weather conditions, climate conditions, milkweed availability. Um, but, you know, really we see this loss of habitat as one of the primary drivers, loss of habitat across their range. So as a reason for that, that this population has fallen from historic highs. And so I think the conversation now is that we've seen monarchs hit rock bottom, you know, 0.67 hectares in Mexico compared to the historic high of over 18. Wow. And so that is a dramatic. It's a pretty dramatic drop over the long term. Mm-hmm. But then in between there, you see some ups and downs and sort of natural fluctuations. And so we're seeing monarchs now fluctuating around this like two to four hectares, which is not certainly well below the historic highs, but, you know, showing some signs of resilience. And um, the the problem with that is, is our goal is six hectares. Mm. And so it's still well below, you know, last year's population of just over two hectares. It's still well below this six hectare goal, which is where we feel like that's a sustainable population size where they could reasonably recover from, you know, have that resilience and recover from severe weather events and and Mm -hmm. the like. So it's not this continuous fall of the population, but over the long term, definitely we've got work to do. Yeah. So got work to do. That is a perfect transition for... Um, when I think about monarchs in milkweed, and again, that's really oversimplifying things based on what you've just described. But I've always thought about monarchs as we all have a role to play to help turn turn in the tide. Um, maybe talk about big picture and citizen science, like how how everybody can play a role in in helping go from get to that goal of six hectares of uh, butterflies that, that your mission lays out. In our world, we call that all hands on deck. Um, yeah. So, so there's some, some research that 
helps scenario planning and looking at who has the biggest opportunity to contribute. Um, and in the end, the long and short of it is that we all have a role to play um, and we need all of it. We need habitat everywhere that we can get it. And um, to that end, to get to this six hectare population size, there the projections, the models are showing we need to add an additional 1.8 billion with the B stems of, of milkweed to the landscape. Um, which is where, you know, Anna's going to talk about the, the, the kit, um, that PF offers. And, and that's a, an important part of that, but we're going to add, you know, 1.8 billion stems of milkweed intermixed in these diverse grassland Mm -hmm. habitats. That's millions of acres of habitat. And so it can't be just ag lands. It can't just be roadside areas. It can't just be backyards. We, we need everybody to find a way to contribute to, this mission to restore these habitats and essentially maximize every acre of grassland. We don't want just these monocultures of grass or lawns, you know, whether it's lawn or roadside areas or margins of crop fields. We want to try and maximize those acres to have more benefit to pollinators. Um, And so we call that all hands on deck Mm -hmm. because it means the research is showing us that we can't actually get to that target unless everybody contributes in, in all the ways that they can. Which brings us to pollinator week, (laughs) which is why we're celebrating and why we'll pass the baton to Anna, why we're celebrating it at pheasants forever and quail forever yet again. Um, And we've created a special package and uh, I'll let you tell folks about uh, what we got special going on for pollinator week Anna yeah we're gonna make it super easy uh, for everyone to kind of try to do their part and it's just I mean as Wendy like talks about that migration and what this butterfly does and how they survive like it's mm-hmm. remarkable and then you think of really any wildlife you think of pheasants or quail and how those chicks survive and they're you know they're impacted by those same you know weather events and everything else like the monarch butterfly but it all boils down to habitat and if they have good habitat they can withstand i you know a lot of those weather events and stuff a lot Mm -hmm. easier when they have that um so our fun kits for pollinator week which i just get super excited about (laughs) um so only offer during pollinator week and we actually sold out last year, I think by like Wednesday or Thursday. So as you guys are listening to this on Wednesday, don't, you know, oh, I'll maybe go check on that tomorrow or on Friday. Uh, I would definitely recommend hopping on right away because they'll probably go fast again. Um, The kits are only $35. And with that, um, you get a Pheasants Forever, Quell Forever membership. And then you get six wildflower plugs. And so there's going to be three different species within there. Um, we have tried to pick a early mid and late bloomer, of course, in there. Um, and there's milkweed in there, of course. So um, another thing that we looked at as well, too, is as we put these kits together is our audience um, is all across the U.S. And so you can't just pick one kit and you know, plant the same thing in California as you are clear over in like Kentucky, right? You're gonna need different species for those. And so um, we are working with a couple different vendors. And so if you're in the West, you're from one vendor, that way we have some more Western specific species for you. Um, and then if you're in the East, we have another vendor and even each of those vendors have like different kits we're doing within them. Um, just cause we're really making sure that when you get your kit um, for your state, those species that you're getting are native there. Um, and that just goes back to that web of life and how everything's connected, that those species have evolved in those climates. Um, and the pollinators that are in those areas are all connected with those native wildflowers. Um, stuff that like, I mean, it can completely go over your head with how connected everything is. But when you pick native species for your area, then you just don't have to worry about it. And it's, mm-hmm. it's great. Um, so there's, I mean, just for the, the kits over 
on the eastern side, we have a specific kit for the Dakotas, um, just because they have a little bit different species that um, they have there. And so there's a columbine, um, which is really cool because you can put that in the shade as well. Um, A red milkweed and then rough blazing star. So you'll see some of the species we had talked about earlier in these kits. Mm-hmm. Um, our central kit. So Bob and Wendy, when you guys get your kits, um, you're going to have a cream indigo. And if I would have known, I would have tried to see if they had a lupine available. But <laughs> I, I failed again. Um, a butterfly milkweed, um, which is so common. Mm. Um, and gorgeous. It's so pretty. Yeah. Um, Bright orange, lots and lots of flowers. And it is absolutely cocaine for butterflies. Right? I mean, it, it, I mean, it just sucks them right in. It's just, it, which is why it's called butterfly weed, right? It yep. is absolutely terrific to have in the backyard. It is. You know, it's and- funny though, like from a monarch perspective, the caterpillars don't, would choose a different species of milkweed if it was available. So mm. the, the the flowers, the pollinators love the, the butterfly milkweed flowers, but the caterpillars would prefer common milkweed or swamp mm. milkweed if if given the choice. But they will eat it. I have. They will. They will. I have pictures. Yep. <laughs> we, uh, in my my little pollinator area in, in Glenwood, I, I had some butterfly, butterfly weed planted there. Um, and there was so many caterpillars on that thing. Um, and I'm trying to think I had another milkweed there too, but there, I mean, there's caterpillars on, on both. Um, but yeah, they, and you bet, when he brings up swamp milkweed, which I, that, that's also another beautiful milkweed in my, and, and you know, it's, it's one of those where a little bit wetter soil, um, mm-hmm. is beneficial to have in, in, again, it's part of the milkweed family. So it has tremendous benefit for monarchs, but it goes to your earlier point, the geography, the soil type, um, it does play into what plants, um, make up your kit, but it, it, you know, from Anna, from, if somebody signs up for this kit, you simply have to pick between Pheasants Forever, Quail Forever membership. Yep. The kit is going to be assigned to you based on the geography the that you're, yep. yeah, the state where you live. So you don't have to make any of these decisions trying to figure out which kit you should get. All you got to do is decide between Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever or sign up for both and you do two packages of kits. Yep. Yeah. You can, then you'll have your, Pheasants Forever and Quill Forever membership. There you go. Uh, and yeah, we also, another thing too, when we put together these kits is we tried to pick what I like to call well-behaved wildflowers. <laughs> um, so not so, common milkweed. Yeah. <laughs> Sidebar. So, I mean, common milkweed and a lot of our listeners will probably know as well too has you know it's on a lot of states like noxious weed lists and you know for a long time i'm like guys it's it's really not it's really not that bad um but i can kind of understand a little bit on maybe how it got on that list before we knew how important it was and we've left some on the farm here and some of like our mulch landscape areas and i was like we cannot pull this common milkweed like it is important for our pollinators it's important for our monarch butterflies and it's it's taken over so i will say planting common milkweed and like wendy said like that's they're gonna prefer that um but just know if you do plant common milkweed at some point in time make sure it's in an area that you're okay with it doing its thing because it's rhizonymous and so it will um, just shoot over different roots and just keep popping up um, new milk. Rhizonymous. We count common milkweed by number of stems because mm-hmm. um, it's it's often really hard to tell. You know, you might have dozens of stems that are all actually connected underground that oh. are all the same, technically the same plant, but um, we count them as individual stems in that regard. And I'm going to embrace the 
letting milkweed take over because I've got in the center of my backyard, I've got, a, I call it Meredith's Meadow. My wife, Meredith, started this pollinator planting in the backyard. And each year we expand the size to plant more stuff. And now I've got the common milkweed taken over the yard, the lawn, which mm-hmm. I love yeah. because that means the more that I have pollinators in the back, um, less I've got to mow. Right. And it's yes. not good to mow anyways. Right. So <laughs> mm-hmm. I'm going to rototill up around the pot, the common milkweed, leave them standing. And that's where I'm going to plant this year's kit is in and around the the milkweed that are popping up in my lawn and the lawn's going to die and we're going to embrace growing more pollinators. And then you won't have to water the lawn. I know. Right? It's perfect. <laughs> Everybody wins, including the monarchs. It does. And yours is right next to your garden, right? So it is. You just, I bet, grow the best tomatoes and everything else because it's <laughs> attracting in all of those pollinators to then pollinate all of your, your garden plants as well, too. It, the web of life. It just keeps yep. circling back to that, doesn't it? It does. <laughs> Um, and then the final element of this kit is something you, you touched on briefly, <laughs> but you take great pride in. So I'm going to let you explain this year's stickers. Yes. So no, maybe maybe after um, for next year, you could get a, a pollinator bobblehead put in the kit. <laughs> That'll just paying that idea for the next year. Um, but I kind of, yeah, hinted at it a little bit. We have pollinator stickers for this week. I don't know if Wendy has seen it. So I have one here. I'll mm. describe it to everybody listening in. Um, but when you click on the link um, and go to pheasantsforeverquailforever.org backslash pollinator week, um, you'll be able to see what the sticker looks like there. Mm-hmm. Um, but it has a graphic. It has plant more wildflowers in the middle. And so you have all of these different species of wildflowers along the top of the sticker. And then what's really cool is on the bottom, it shows their different root structures, right. um, which is super cool. Um, it is what I think differentiates um, our native wildflowers from like your long grass or anything like that is there. Not only are they pretty they produce all this forage um and they're great for our pollinators and upland birds but man when you start looking at what's beneath the ground mm-hmm. um those different root structures is um it helps you know with water absorption and nutrient absorption um it can soil health soil climate health. resilience yeah, it's so it's it's pretty cool something you don't normally think of um uh, but it's why they're so drought tolerant too in my then you don't have to water your lawn all the time. It's a great illustration of the importance for pollinator week, but even think, um, you know, another initiative we have within the organization is the North American Grasslands Conservation Act, which is trying to create legislation much like the North American Wetlands Conservation Act that's focused on restoring and conserving wetlands. The same concept applied to grasslands. So grasses, sage, sagebrush, the glades, and those grasses are more than just grass. It's forbs, flowering plants, it's legumes, um, which benefits all our favorite game birds from sage grouse to bobwhite quail to scaled quail, but then also that grasslands act where to get past benefits monarch butterflies, honeybees, um, everything we're talking about. Again, I'm a broken record. It's the web of life. (laughs) And that root structure is a great illustration of um, a healthy soil system for um, water retention, like you mentioned, um, climate resiliency. um, And, you know, it's one great big food plot for Sounds like the new uh, pollin- PF pollinator program slogan in the making. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> pollinator food plots. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Yeah. 
um, well, I, it, this has been wonderful. I, I'll, I'll point people the 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 offer is at pheasantsforever.org slash pollinator week yep. or quailforever.org slash pollinator week. Monarch Joint Venture you can find at monarchjointventure.org. And I'll point people to just just take a look at the partners page and all the wonderful groups that are involved in um, helping create habitat to reverse the decline in monarch butterflies. Um, As we close out this episode, I want to just get some closing thoughts from each of you. We'll we'll start with Wendy. Uh, First of all, Wendy, thank you very much for sharing the, the story of the monarch butterfly. It's it's an unbelievably complex species when you start breaking down the migration and the connection to different milkweed species. And, and we all, so many of us have developed a love of that butterfly when we were just kids. And it, it is wonderful to see, you know, I've seen diehard bird hunters who are planting habitat with the goal ultimately of being able to chase their bird dog around in in really wonderful beautiful habitat right with prairie flowers and grasses but when they see monarchs come to the milkweed or the butterfly weed in their pheasant habitat you can see the sense of pride and joy that exists um and the whole family can connect to that. Um, so it's really, really inspiring. And it, it's cool to see the, the interconnection as not only as third graders, but also octogenarians as well and everybody in between. Um, give us your closing thoughts, Wendy, for as wrapping up this episode. Yeah. Well, and thanks again for having me. This was, this was really fun. Um, and, and I will say it never gets old, right? I've been doing this longer than 15 years and I like get, giddy every time the, mm. I see my first monarch of the season and we're out, I'm out with my kids hunting for caterpillars and they love it. Maybe, maybe I just think that they love it, but, but they do. <laughs> um, so it, it never gets old. It, and we learn, we, we learn new things every day. Uh, my closing thought, you know, I think really comes back to this point that I made earlier about we need everyone. We need all hands on deck. Um, and, and that means, you know, essentially, I think what I want to emphasize there is that there's no, there's nothing too small. So whether it's, you know, giving a a donation or restoring a huge parcel of land, or getting out and participating in some community science program, and just telling us what you're seeing out there on the landscape, or, you know, talking about pollinators, talking about monarchs with your friend, you don't, you don't know who you're going to strike up a, a, an interest with. And, you know, advocating for legislation that's going to support pollinator habitat. There's there's so many ways to get involved that you don't have to own this big piece of land. Um, we need, don't get me wrong. We need those those big pieces of sure. land to to support all of these critters. But um, there's really so many different ways to get involved from whatever place in life you are, whether you're a kid or an adult. Um, check out our website and and definitely find a way that that means is meaningful to you for how to plug into this cause so that you can contribute to a bigger, bigger conservation mission. Yeah, right on. That's you're exactly right. There's so many different levels of ways to contribute with that big picture, big acreage, becoming a member of Pheasants Forever, Quail Forever, or, you know, simply going to actforgrasslands.org, sign in the action alert to support grassland conservation, you know, very, or just picking up a packet of seeds and planting in your backyard and doing something fun with the kiddos. Um, Anna, your, your closing thoughts as we wrap up another pollinator week together. Go to pheasantsforever, quailforever.org slash pollinator week to get your kits. They are going to go fast. Um, if not, because I'm telling everybody that I know to go and, <laughs> and buy the kits. <laughs> um, but have fun with them. I mean, these kits are per- like Wendy had mentioned too. It, 
you know, you have a bunch of land to plant these on um, where you can just add to it. Or if you're, you know, living right in the middle of suburbia, right in the middle of the city, um, there's space to be able to put these plants and it's, I don't know, I, it is so much fun once you know what you're looking at and you get to watch your, your flowers grow and then you get mm-hmm. to see all of these different insects that it's supporting. Um, it's so much fun to watch throughout the year and then watch them as they come back up in the spring, which is yeah. super cool. You're right. I, I, I love watching the progression of the plants throughout uh, the course of the summer and uh, leading into fall. And it is um, kind of a rite of passage. You see the, the common milkweed, that puff of seeds, and you know that the, you know, the monarchs are on their way south. And that means it's time to follow the bird dog into the field too. And, um, you know, that's, that's part of the joy of being connected to mother nature and in, in hunting, because you do, you pay really a close attention to the habitat and all the species, um, that are make up part of the wonderful uplands that we all care about. So yeah, I've missed many of birds cause I'm, <laughs> <laughs> Hey, there's, there's a new excuse for me. I was looking yeah, at the butterfly. Better, yeah. you, you got your gun on one, in one hand and your camera in the other. So, oh, I yes. mean, how do you choose, Anna? I don't know. <laughs> it's so hard. Yeah. I, ha- I mean, I have, I have monarch pictures out in a field that we were dove hunting out of. Um, mm. So it's so cool. Um, so sometimes you can catch that fall migration when you're already <laughs> already out in the field. <laughs> well, there there we go. We got a, a new goal to reach for. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Last reminder, uh, it's pollinator week. So take advantage of this absolutely killer offer. Um, if you were to go try to buy these plugs on their own, it would be far exceed the $35 uh, kit price with the membership package for pheasants forever or quail forever the stickers and the six plugs check it out at pheasantsforever.org slash pollinator week or quail forever.org slash pollinator week and based on where you live we'll send you a kit of of pollinator plugs specific to your geography um, Wendy, Anna, thank you so much for sharing this episode with me. Uh, Anna, you're you're just frankly not allowed to leave. Um, <laughs> I've been told that a time or two. <laughs> <laughs> this won't be the last time we talk. No. Even if you're not an employee, we'll check in with you uh, um, for Pollinator Week down the road. All right, folks, thank you very much for listening. I'm Bob St. Pierre reminding you to always follow the dog. Something good will rise. Thanks, folks.